0: Hey, welcome to the Neighbors Church podcast. And this is uh, our second installment in our Pillar series, but it's actually going to cover our third pillar of prayer. Neighbors is being built upon six pillars, word and spirit, prayer and faith, family and hospitality. So let's talk about prayer. Most of us, if we've been in the church for any amount of time, we feel like our prayer life is absolutely abysmal. A contemplative author, Richard Foster, wrote a book entitled Prayer, Finding the Heart's True Home. And in this book, he details 21 different types of prayer, 21 different types of prayer. And most of those types of prayer look nothing like uh, an intentional time in the morning, covering a specific list while we're bowing on our knees, folding our hands and closing our eyes. We tend to think of prayer only as confession and our requests or praise, and it always includes words, eyes closed, hands folded, knees bent. It's not less than these things, but it is so much more. So what Foster goes on to propose is that we actually are praying more than we realize. We just don't recognize it as prayer. So he writes, through this book, I will be seeking to name our experiences of prayer I hope in this way to define something of the character of our dialogue with God. Countless people, you see, pray far more than they know. Often they have such a stained glass image of prayer that they fail to recognize what they are experiencing as prayer and so condemn themselves for not praying. I tell you what, that is great news for us. What Foster is saying is that prayer is simply dialogue with God. He's saying no matter what our physical posture is, or even what our planned intention is, if we are in some sort of dialogue with God, we are in prayer. So prayer can be times of lament, where we're just weeping as we cry, you know, God, this hurts so much. Prayer occurs in times of anger, when we're saying, you know, God, this is so wrong. Dialogue can happen in times of fear, like when somebody cuts us off at 80 miles an hour on the freeway, and suddenly we're singing, Jesus, take the wheel. (laughs) You know, Communication with God takes place even when we're just struck by the beauty of a sunset and we just kind of silently take it in, acknowledging this amazing artist that painted that beautiful picture. Prayer occurs in context of grief and joy, confusion, and certainty, fear, and confidence. Prayer takes place in times when words are just bursting out of us and in times when words won't suffice and so we remain silent. When we are aware of God, We are in prayer. Prayer is the process of attuning our souls to God's presence and purpose for the sake of relationship and obedience. Two of my greatest heroes of the faith are somewhat obscure and unknown men. One was a 17th century Carmelite monk from Paris named Brother Lawrence. The other was a missionary to a population of Muslims located on some remote islands in the Philippines. His name was Frank Laubach. Both of these men devoted their lives to being aware of God's presence at all times. Brother Lawrence wrote a book called Practicing the Presence, where he detailed for a friend his lifelong journey to becoming aware of God's presence in every single moment of his day. So Brother Lawrence coached his friend saying, gradually by degrees, train yourself to worship him and seek his grace. Offer him your heart from time to time in the midst of your daily work. Do it every minute of the day if you can. So Brother Lawrence committed himself to this process, and he struggled and failed. But he also talked about coming to experience communion with God while doing dishes. He experienced communion with God while doing dishes just as intensely as during his required times of intentional prayer as a, as a Carmelite monk. Now, even more provocatively, Brother Lawrence would write, I have stopped practicing all forms of devotion and set prayer, except those which I am obliged to participate in. I make it my practice only to persevere in His holy presence. I do this by paying attention to and directing my affection to God. It is a habitual, silent, secret communion of the soul with God. This often causes such joys and raptures inwardly, and sometimes also outwardly, that I am forced to make an effort to moderate them to prevent their appearances to others. That's amazing. What Lawrence was achieving was this ever increasing, constant state of prayerful communion with God, and it overflowed him with joy so much so that sometimes he could barely contain it. Centuries later, missionary Frank Laubach developed a practice that he called the game of minutes. He played this game every day by seeing how many minutes out of every hour he could simply be aware that God was present and guiding him. Laubach, in his letters written to his father, wrote about both the extreme difficulty of keeping his mind attuned to God's presence constantly, but also about these rapturous moments of delight and an ease that this process brought to his daily activities when he was successful in being aware of God's presence in every moment. He wrote, As I analyze myself, I find several things happening to me as a result of these months of strenuous effort to keep God in mind every minute. This concentration upon God is strenuous, but everything else has ceased to be so. I think more clearly. I forget less frequently. Things which I did with strain before, I now do easily and with no effort whatever. I worry about nothing and lose no sleep. I walk on air a good part of the time. Even the mirror reveals a new light in my eyes and face. I no longer feel in a hurry about anything. Everything goes right. Each minute I meet calmly as though it were not important. Nothing can go wrong except one thing. That is that God may slip from my mind if I do not keep on guard. That sounds amazing. Walking on air, things going well, getting enough sleep. What these two men did was they learned to carry a posture of bent knee and folded hands in their hearts everywhere they went, no matter what they were doing. Through devotion and discipline, they were on the journey to obeying what the great Apostle Paul commanded the Thessalonian church— pray without ceasing and that's what our third pillar of prayer means for neighbor's church we want to commit to constantly attuning to god's presence and his purpose every breath of our lives this is by no means easy but each moment of success is immeasurably powerful jesus as a human lived this way of prayer perfectly His prayer life was perfect as he yielded himself without restraint continually to the Father. He was moved perfectly by the power and guidance of the Holy Spirit. Jesus knew his Father was always listening. After raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. you got to catch that. Jesus knew that his Father always heard him. That reality shaped Jesus' life. He lived knowing his good Father was listening and ready to respond. His attunement to God was fueled by his certainty that God was available every moment. Jesus actually would say about himself in John chapter 8, I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. So Jesus, out of complete confidence in God's constant presence, would say, I do nothing on my own. (coughs) Excuse me. He would say, I speak the words that the Father has given me alone, and I please him. That's our goal, neighbors. Brother Lawrence, he worded it this way. He said he wanted to be surrendered to God's heart so fully that he wouldn't even pick up a piece of straw from the ground apart from God's will. And if he did pick up that piece of straw from the ground, he only wanted to do it out of abandoned love for God. Frank Laubach said, I want to respond to God as a violin responds to the bow of the master. And Jesus said, His Father always hears and is always with us. So with prayer as a pillar of our community, we want to talk with our father in this beautiful father-child relationship so that we can yield and respond to him in increasing measure as he speaks, as he guides. The big question is, how? How is such a prayer life attained? Well, first of all, I think attainment is the wrong way of thinking about this type of life, this level of prayer. I think process and growth are better ways to think about this. It all starts with Jesus and his Holy Spirit indwelling us as humans. Remember, when Jesus prayed, he prayed as the Son, beloved and cherished. When we trust Jesus and we seek to obey, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit indwells us, we now pray as sons and daughters, just like Jesus did. We pray as the Father's loved, cherished children. So the foundation for growth in the process of constant prayer starts by praying as a child, remembering that we are dependent, being humble. So once again, concretely, how do we go about this? Three things. Embrace the process. Wrestle until you lose. Surrender to love embrace the process, wrestle until you lose, surrender to love. Let's talk about this. To grow in prayer, to be unceasing in our attunement to God's presence, we need to embrace the process that God puts us through. We learn a lot from the earliest leaders of the church, Peter and Paul. Their process of growth is our process of growth. So for Peter, In the Gospels, he appears to be this self-confident follower of Jesus. He seems to always know the plan, and Peter knows that he's going to be a big part of that plan until Jesus ominously warns him that Peter's going to deny him three times before the rooster crows. And Peter, he brushes that off, but in the end, Jesus' prophecy is true. His confidence, Peter's confidence in his own commitment— to Jesus fails, and he does indeed deny him three times. Now, Peter was absolutely devastated by this. In desperation, Peter wept after that third denial of Jesus, and that was a mark of this deep regret in the man. Peter wanted to be right with Jesus. Now, at the very end of the Gospel of John, the resurrected Jesus comes to Peter, and Peter is disoriented, he is broken, he is utterly at the end of himself. But there are two things that remain in Peter's heart, two things that he's desperate for. He wants Jesus to accept him, and he wants to know that he is accepted by Jesus, and Peter wants the ability to obey Jesus. At this point, at the end of the Gospel of John, when Jesus is beginning to restore Peter, Peter no longer has a self-confident commitment to Jesus, because that self-confident commitment failed him in the most crucial moment. We see from Peter's responses to Jesus that he doesn't even trust his own heart any longer. He literally tells the Lord, you know my heart. You know if I will love you as I should love you and love your people as I should love them. Peter had been brought to an absolute desperate dependence on Jesus's grace, his plans, Jesus's knowledge of his own inner being. And at the very end of the days of Peter, He would write to the apprentices of Jesus spread across Asia Minor, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Peter, in this process, had become desperately humble, like a child. The process of denying Jesus and then being restored had produced a humility That stood under and relied on God's mighty hand always. But you gotta note, it was a process of partnership. Peter says, Humble yourselves. There's this intention to stand under God's abilities to take care of us, there's partnership in casting our cares on God and believing that He cares for us. Embracing the process means that we partner with God and decide to live out of our identity as dependent children. Embracing the process means that we intentionally deny the lie that we are independent and have control of our world. Now, the Apostle Paul as well, we learn much from. He talked about a specific time in his church planting ministry when he was pretty certain it was all over. Paul thought he was literally going to die at this point in his life. He wrote to the Corinthians saying, We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. Obviously, a terribly painful time for the Apostle Paul. But what we see is he wasn't being given the sentence of death. He was learning to desperately rely on the God who raises the dead and rely on nothing else but him. You know, we spend most of our mental and emotional energy trying to overcome and escape and fix our desperate circumstances. To embrace the process and grow in prayer means that we, over time, more and more, divert our energy to praying first, praying more often, more than we exhaust ourselves trying to fix and change and overcome the things in our lives. And so for, for example, when we can't get free from the anxiety, that's an invitation to more intensive prayer. The anxiety becomes a guide to God in prayer. When the future is uncertain, that is a pathway that leads to God's presence as we pray. When a particular sin keeps besetting us, as the Bible uses that language, like setting us back, we keep struggling with it, we besiege it with constant prayer. And so rather than gritting our teeth with the guilt of another failure, we consciously focus on God's forgiving grace, we receive his loving embrace, no matter what we've done, and that strengthens us against that sin. The process of increasing prayer is a process of continually being reminded by God That we are dependent children. We are not in control. We are not independent. We are in desperate need of Him always. And so, humble, desperate, childlike dependence is where prayer starts, it's where prayer continues, and it is where prayer ends. Second, wrestle until you lose. To grow in constant prayer, we will wrestle. Our fallen nature, as the Bible calls it, that old part of us that's not redeemed yet, it wrestles with the new childlike creation within us. And so our flesh, that old part of us, wants independence and control, but the Spirit within us has made us dependent and wants to let God have control. So there's a civil war of sorts within us, and we will wrestle, and we must pray that the Spirit will win, that the new creation will win. Our society surrounding us propagates all of these promises of self-fulfilled success. Just work hard and the American dream is going to be yours. And many wrestle for that, but the dream seems to continually elude them. Therefore, we are constantly wrestling with what society says we should do, what society says we should have, what society says the way we should behave, and society has to lose. We have to align ourselves with the king and his kingdom. And Satan, the original lie of Satan was strategically designed to get us to believe that we aren't desperate and that we don't need God. Therefore, we have to wrestle. We have to sweat spiritually. We have to resist the tides of culture. We have to fight the civil war within us. We have to war with an enemy around us. We will also wrestle with God. This is so important. As we grow and embrace the process of prayer, we will go through extended seasons of wrestling with God as he is deepening our souls. In the book of Genesis, one of the most notoriously self-dependent characters in all the Bible has this incredible encounter with God. Jacob was his name, and he had schemed his way through life But he eventually reached the end of himself, and there the text tells us the angel of the Lord appeared to him. And so the story says that the two of them wrestled through the night. Jacob wanted something from God, and what he wanted, he could not get through his own means any longer. And so this wrestling scene was Jacob grabbing hold of God and saying, help me, I'm humbled, I'm desperate. I'll read from Genesis 32, verses 25 to 26. When the man, that's a reference to the angel of the Lord, when the man saw that he could not overpower him, that's Jacob, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob wrestled so desperately and intensively with God for a blessing that he actually prevailed. He got it. But in his prevailing, he lost something. Jacob lost his old name. Let me read to you from verses 26 to 28 of Genesis 32. The man, that's the angel of the Lord, asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Names in the Bible are a big deal. They represent the life of the human that bears them. They carry a lot of freight. Jacob meant heel catcher or schemer or manipulator. So in this scene, Jacob wrestled and he wanted help. He wanted blessing. And in gaining it, he lost his old name. In other words, something gave way. He lost his old ways of living. He lost his old patterns. Jacob lost his old identity in his wrestlings. And was given a new one. God renamed him Israel, which could roughly mean persevering or persisting or overcoming. And so Jacob's new name, Israel, became the fountainhead of a people who were to persist in faith and obedience to Yahweh as his chosen children. And it's important to notice Jacob didn't leave this scene victorious with head held high and prideful. Jacob left this wrestling match with God limping. Verse 31 says, The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. That limp would serve as a constant reminder to Jacob that blessing came through losing his old name, through losing his old ways. His wrestling had led to the loss of his self-reliant walk. But his new life, marked with a limp and a new name and a new dependence, would be utterly devoted to God and would generate an entire population of people whose sole purpose was to be devoted to God. We will all wrestle with God at times and something will have to give way. We will have to lose our old names. We will have to lose our old ways and it can be painful. For many, it will leave us with a limp but we gain these new identities and these new ways of life, even though we limp and it's truly beautiful as we leave a legacy for God. Finally, growing in prayer and becoming constantly attuned to our father and listening to him constantly with every breath, we embrace the process. We wrestle until we lose and then we surrender to love. We surrender to love to lose is to surrender Our flesh doesn't want to surrender, but we are not our flesh. We are born again, spirit-filled children. So embracing the process of growing in prayer leads to wrestling with God as he shapes us in the image of his son. And our wrestling with him is often trying to what we're trying to hold on to is what we think we need, what we think we want, sometimes more than him. And so we have to let that go and lose that. As we wrestle, there's going to be... The sense that we are losing everything, but we're not. In the end, we are gaining our truest desires as his loved children. Loss in the kingdom of Jesus is a surrender to perfect love. It's a surrender to a gift giver that we could never comprehend. It's a surrender to a father who only has our highest flourishing on his heart. We are surrendering to a Father who loves us and wants to partner with us in accomplishing His will through us, through our prayers, through our attunement to His presence and His purposes. How can we be assured of this? How do we know that when we lose, we are surrendering to love? We have to look at Jesus' process of wrestling and His loss to gain us. Jesus wrestled mightily with the Father right before going to the cross. Luke tells us that the man actually sweat blood, an actual medical condition under great duress where the capillaries burst under the skin. Jesus sweat blood, asking his Father to let the cup of suffering and pain and humiliation and death on the cross pass from him. He cried out, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me yet not what I will, but you will. Jesus surrendered to love for us. Jesus wrestled and he gave up. He lost his life for us. His love for us compelled him to surrender to the cross so that we could be forgiven and accepted and made new. Jesus wrestled and surrendered to the cross to gain his most cherished possession, you and me. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans summarizes our process of growing in constant prayer. He says, The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba Father. Because Jesus wrestled and cried out, Abba Father, and then lost his life in surrender, we now are freely given the Spirit who cries out within us, Abba, Father. And we go forth in our wrestlings, surrendering to the power of the Holy Spirit within us as children who have been granted eternal life. The Spirit within us cries out in constant prayer, knowing that our Father hears us and sees us. And in ever-increasing measure, As we attune to God's presence and purpose, we become like Jesus, and we do what Jesus did in this world, pleasing our Father. Embrace this process. Wrestle until you lose. Surrender to love. Be loved this week, friend.